Good morning, everybody. It's good to be back in worship together. Let's pray as we open the word of God. Father, we thank you for another time uh, to gather, if only uh, in front of a computer screen or a phone screen. Uh, but Lord, the, the important thing is we are gathered to bring our praise and our worship to you, to glorify your name, to bless your name. Thank you, Lord, that you do not uh, treat us as our sins deserve. Uh, you don't repay our iniquities, but in Jesus, you have come in mercy to forgive us our sin, to give us eternal life, to give us abundant life. Lord, we thank you for uh, your amazing plan and for your work in our lives. And now as we open your word, uh, we ask that your Holy Spirit would attend and give us alertness in spirit and in our ears, help us to hear well, and uh, Lord, to act upon what we hear. May this be an encouragement. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it has been uh, an unseasonably warm spring, hasn't it? 35, 36 degree days already, and we're not even in July. Um, this past week, I was kind of, as, as I was experiencing the weather, I was walking down uh, memory lane a little bit in my mind's eye, and I was thinking back to summers uh, growing up in Alberta, uh, going out to our family cabin, and on days when it was particularly hot, uh, sometimes we would jump in our little um, aluminum boat, had a little motor on it, and we'd motor out um, a few hundred feet or so until the water was about 20 or 30 feet deep. And then we would proceed to jump out of the boat into the water, climb back into the boat, jump in again. We'd do that over and over again uh, to kind of cool off. And sometimes what we'd do is we would test ourselves uh, could we swim all the way kind of straight down and touch the bottom of the lake with our feet? Uh, would we have enough air as we went down? Would, would we have enough courage to do that? As you swam in a downward direction, the water would get significantly colder, even when you're down a foot or two feet or so. Uh, not as much sunshine uh, coming into the deeper parts. And in places in that lake, the seaweed growing up from the bottom of the lake uh, could reach heights of about six feet or so, and it would still be under the water. So it's kind of waving gently in the water. And as you're coming down, sometimes it was a little creepy <laughs> actually, as your feet touched the seaweed. Not to mention that large Northern pike also swam in that lake. Someone one summer caught a fish that was nearly 30 pounds. And these northern pike have rows of very sharp teeth. So with all of that in mind, I admit that I, it, it, sometimes it was a little unsettling, actually, uh, swimming or treading water even in the deeper parts of that lake. Well, those memories at the lake, th those pictures in my mind uh, of my experience often come to my mind when I read a scripture verse like Jonah Chapter 2, verse 5, where Jonah describes being in water. The waters were closing in over him. The deep was surrounding him. The weeds were wrapped about his head. Jonah in that verse is describing what? He's describing his distress. He's describing his great trouble. 
as he sank down into the sea. And in fact, this imagery of water, of being in deep water, sometimes it's used in scripture as a metaphor to describe great trouble in a person's life. In Psalm 69, David says, listen to the water imagery, the waters have come up to my neck. And he says, I have come into deep waters. And he describes how he was in danger of being swallowed up by the deep. What David was describing there was a season of great distress in his life, where he felt close to death, in fact. Uh, where there was even a sense of being alienated from God. You know, many, one of the many things that, that I love about the scriptures are that they name as a reality the distress and the deep suffering that we sometimes experience in this life. Scripture does not try to uh, kind of hide our eyes from suffering or, or to minimize suffering or to change the channel from suffering. Scripture doesn't do that. Instead, it says to us, essentially it says, don't deny the experience of suffering. Face it as a reality. But when you face it, face it with faith in God. Well, our psalm this morning, which is Psalm 130, begins by naming our pain and facing our suffering as a reality. It takes us right into the deep end of things as it kicks off. Verse 1, out of the depths I cry to you, O Yahweh. Out of the depths. When you're down in the depths, the water is cold. The water is foreboding. And, and the possibility of death is very real. It's a fearsome thing to be in the depths. Who can hear you cry out when you are 300 feet down? What the psalmist is describing here with the word depths is anguish, despair. Some of you right now are in the depths, even as I'm preaching. Others of us have recently come through a time in the depths. And for others of us, it's possible that we may soon enter a time in the depths. What's key here in verse 1 is what the psalmist is doing while in the depths. What he is engaged in while in despair and while in distress. What's he doing? He's crying out to God. That's what he's doing. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. So get this, in his moment of crisis, in his moment of distress, in his moment of great heartache, 
the activity that the psalmist is engaged in is crying out to God. That is what he's doing, crying out to God. The verse does not say, out of the depths I'm concentrating on uh, positive thinking and I'm just trying to, to stay positive and not think about my distress too much. It doesn't say that. Nor does it say, out of the depths, I've signed up for a lecture on the nature of suffering. I'm going to busy myself with research on my suffering. No, out of the depths, the psalmist says, I am wailing and crying in God's direction. Eugene Peterson translated this verse, Help God, the bottom has fallen out of my life. When the bottom fell out of the psalmist's life, he cried to God. When he found himself in a sea of trouble, the weeds wrapped around his head and, and the waters engulfing him and dragging him down to death, that's when he cried out to God. There is the cry of faith here, even in the depths of despair. It, it's a great encouragement to us, I think, that even when we are in the thick of heartache, God is still in bounds. We can yet cry to him. His ears are still open to us. Verse 2, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Now, as we read this verse, we have to wonder, as the psalmist wrote these words, had he been feeling, like we often feel, that God is not hearing? That God maybe is less attentive to our situation than we would like him to be? Is that why the psalmist here is so bold and so assertive here? Hear me. God, be attentive to me. I feel like you're not hearing me, O oh God, that, that you're not attentive to my pain. It's nothing short of wonderful, I think, that this verse is inspired and written in God's holy word. God here is giving us the green light to pray this way. God, lend me your ear. Lord, be attentive to me. God is pleased when we pray this way. That's why he inspired this verse. He's pleased when we pray this way in faith, clinging to the fact that he does hear the desperate cries of his people. Our God is not deaf like idols are deaf. Our cry in our distress and our cry in our grief and in the valleys of our lives, our cry comes up to his ears. He hears us. We can be assured of that. The psalmist in verse 2 mentions that he's pleading to God for mercy. Be attentive, Lord, to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Now, when you're pleading for mercy... You are pleading, aren't you, for sheer uh, benevolence. 
That's what you're pleading for. You're pleading for grace. In the midst of his tremendous difficulty, out of the depths, the psalmist is pleading for God to help. For God to give the help that only God can give. The psalmist is pleading for gracious intervention. And then we have verse 3 where we get a huge clue as to what the psalmist's uh, specific difficulty was. What the depths were that he was mired in. He says, if you, O Yahweh, should, listen, mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? It would seem here that the depths or the distress and the trouble that the psalmist was experiencing, uh, that he's already mentioned in verse 1, this trouble was directly related to his iniquity to his sin, to his misdeeds. He was in trouble because of sin. But what we note here in verse 3, and and I find this interesting, what we note is that the psalmist doesn't simply come out and say here, Lord, forgive me my sin. Instead of that, he presents us with a hypothetical scenario. Notice this. If... You should mark iniquities, O Lord. Lord, you don't mark iniquities. We know that. But for the sake of argument, say you did mark iniquities, then who could stand? Isn't this interesting? A little hypothetical scenario that is presented to us here. Now, as we peer a little harder into this verse, what we see is that the word translated, at least translated by the ESV here, as mark, mark iniquities, the Hebrew word underneath that translation is actually a common word in the Hebrew Bible, but normally the word means to watch or to guard or to keep. Watch, guard, or keep. So then the idea here might be that the psalmist is saying something like this. Hey, it could be uh, hypothetically possible, at least, that God guards or he keeps a careful watch over all our iniquities, all our sins, and make sure that none of those iniquities escape his scrutiny, escape his gaze. It could be that, but... That's not God's principal method. After all, if it was his principal method, then who could stand? Which one of us, being unrighteous as we are in the sight of God, which one of us could escape the judgment of God if it were the case that he marked our iniquities or if he guarded our iniquities? Let none of them escape his gaze. Well, the psalmist presents this hypothetical scenario in verse 3 in order to let the truth of verse 4 shine out just as brightly as possible. What's the truth about God? The truth is in verse 4. But with you, Lord, listen, there is what? Forgiveness. With you, Lord, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Now, friend, I ask you today, 
are you a person who has this sense that God's primary, main, preoccupying role in heaven is to search out all of your smallest sins and catch you in those sins and then hang a cosmic baseball bat over your head in judgment. Is that your sense of God? I ask you, if God's preoccupying activity was to do that, then what hope would any of us have? And so I invite you to listen with your soul to the opening of verse 4. Digest these words deep into your being. May the Holy Spirit help us here. But with you, God, there is forgiveness. But with you, God, there is pardon. We could translate the word here. Pardon. With you, O God, there is the removal of my sins and the restoration of right relationship between yourself and me. Listen, when God wanted to declare the basic, most crucial points concerning himself, concerning his character, concerning his reputation, in Exodus chapter 34, one of the things that he made sure to include there was the fact that he is a God who, listen, I'm quoting from the text, who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. That's who God is. The repentant person who confesses his or her sin to God is coming before one who is compassionate, coming before one who stands ready to forgive. And the forgiveness of God here in verse 4 has a purpose. Notice here that the purpose of God's forgiveness is what? That he may be feared. Isn't this interesting? God gives forgiveness so that reverence for him might be aroused. I love what Charles Spurgeon said about this. Here's what Spurgeon said, quote, None fear the Lord like those who have experienced His forgiving love. Gratitude for pardon produces far more fear and reverence of God than all the dread which is inspired by punishment. Listen to that last sentence again. Gratitude for pardon. This is Charles Spurgeon. Gratitude for pardon produces far more fear and reverence of God than all the dread which is inspired by punishment. And then Spurgeon said this, quote, It is grace which leads the way to a holy regard for God and a fear of grieving him. Again, it is grace which leads the way to a holy regard of God and a fear of grieving him. God forgives 
that we may fear him, that we may reverence him. Well, so far in our psalm, we've heard the psalmist crying out from his extremity, crying out to God out of his deep distress, imploring God to hear and to be attentive to his pleas for mercy. And we've seen in verses 3 and 4 that the distress that the psalmist was facing was connected to his iniquity and his sin. But the psalmist expressed confidence, didn't he? Confidence in God's willingness to forgive. Now in verse 5, watch carefully where the psalmist goes next. Now, just before we get there. As many of you know, I like to barbecue. Here here I go again talking about one of my favorite subjects, (laughs) barbecue. I like to use the low and slow technique. So low temperature and a slow hours long cooking time uh, to get fantastic results. And I do mean fantastic with big, tougher cuts of meat. Now, when you do that style of barbecue, there's no rushing the results. No rushing the results. To, to do a 10-pound, if you got a 10-pound pork shoulder and you want to do it the right way, it's going to take, and you just have to know this going into it, it's going to take 16 to 18 hours on the smoker. So there's a lot of waiting involved. You wait and you wait as you uh, tend the fire, uh, uh, make sure the temperature of the cooking chamber remains constant. Uh, but, but even with all the waiting involved, you're full of great hope because you know that in the end, that thing is going to be absolutely mouthwatering and delicious. It will be well worth the wait. Well, the next part of our psalm is all about waiting and hoping. Verses 5 and 6 read, I wait for Yahweh. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. I mentioned a moment ago my eager waiting for the slow smoked meat to be finished cooking after all those many hours. Well, the verb here in verse 5 that's translated wait has the sense of eagerly waiting. But of course, it's not smoked meat that uh, the psalmist is eagerly waiting for. Rather, it's something infinitely better. It's Yahweh himself. The psalmist eagerly waits for Yahweh, for the Lord. Now let's think about waiting for a moment. Have you ever thought about waiting? Frankly, many of us are growing a little tired of the amount of waiting that we have to do these days. We, we have to wait in lineups now. When we go to Pharmapri or when we're at Super C or Costco, we, fa- we find generally waiting in lines uh, to be sort of a less than ideal use of our time. Um, We also don't like to wait very much for something like an update on the computer um, if it takes forever to download. 
Um, if it's more than about three minutes, we get sort of antsy, like, come on, I don't want to wait around for this. We are people who prefer quick resolutions to things, right? Uh, efficient uses of our time. We don't generally like a lot of waiting. But here's the thing, and I want you to listen. Waiting on God or waiting for God is actually a biblical virtue. Waiting on God is described in the Bible as a very positive thing. Waiting on God is a stance or it's a posture in the life of faith that actually is commanded in places like Psalm 27:14 and Psalm 37:34 and scripture says there is blessing that is attached to waiting for the Lord. Listen to these texts, Isaiah 30 verse 18. Blessed are those who wait for him. Blessed are those who wait for him. There's blessing attached to waiting for the Lord. Lamentations 3.25, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. And Isaiah 64.4, God acts for those who wait for him. There is a blessedness in our waiting for the Lord. And so my question for you is, will you wait for him? Are you right now in your life waiting for the Lord? Waiting bears fruit in our lives. Waiting does a number of things. It, it works patience in us. That's a good thing. And it also trains us as we're waiting to submit to God, to trust him, to depend on him for his timing. And it does sort of uh, uh, inculcate in us a sense of dependence on God as we wait. We are dependent on him, which is always where God wants us to be. I wait for Yahweh. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. In his word, I hope. The word that the psalmist was hoping for here was an oracle. It was a word of forgiveness that would come from a prophet or from a priest who would declare forgiveness and clemency for sins committed. Uh, just as the prophet Nathan had declared to David that David's sin had been put away after the Bathsheba affair, so the psalmist here was waiting and hoping for such a word of forgiveness and absolution. He was waiting. And of course, this theme of waiting for the Lord is carried over into verse 6, where we have this interesting uh, twofold repetition here of this phrase, more than watchman for the morning. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. Now, if your job in the ancient Near East was to be a night watchman, so either a person who was assigned to watch the outskirts of the city for attackers in the night who might try to make an incursion into the city, 
That's one form of watchman. Or a watchman could be a person up on the high walls who was watching for daybreak in order to signal to the people that it was time for the first day's offerings in the temple courts. If your job was to be a watchman, most of the time, your role would be a fairly uneventful, tedious role. You didn't do too much. As Alan Ross puts it, quote, much of the time, watchmen do little besides wait for the morning, check, checking for it regularly, looking for that first bit of dawn and then the light, close quote. I think our verse repeats the phrase here, more than watchmen for the morning. It repeats this twice in order to emphasize the tedium of the role. But also, perhaps, it repeats this phrase to em emphasize the focus, the intense longing as he waited patiently for the Lord. The thing about these two verses of our psalm, verses 5 and 6, is, listen, they are calling you and they are calling me to be people who wait. Are you ready to wait? These verses are calling each of us to be watchmen, to wait for God and to be watchmen. You know, to wait patiently for God and to wait in a posture of submission to Him, dependence on Him, that is to be sure of God, to use Eugene Peterson's phrase. Peterson says that our psalmist would not have been content to be a watchman if he were not sure of God. The psalmists and the Christians waiting and watching, that is, hoping, is based on the conviction that God is actively involved in his creation and vigorously at work in redemption. Close quote. That's Eugene Peterson. And so, my friend, are you waiting for the Lord? Are you happily taking on the role of watchman? Are you patiently, prayerfully submitting to the Lord's timing and the Lord's action on things? Or are you impatient, dissatisfied with how God seems to be tarrying, dissatisfied with God's calendar, so that now you are jumping ahead of him, out of step with his spirit, trying to make things happen by yourself. Are you waiting or are you impatient? My encouragement to you is to do the counterintuitive thing. Be a watchman. Go about the tasks that God has called you to, that he has assigned to you, and leave the results to him. Wait for him. Lamentations 3.25, again, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. But let's go finally to our last two verses, verses 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in Yahweh. For with Yahweh there is chesed, steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. 
So now here, notice the psalmist calls the entire community of the Lord, the entire people of Israel, to hope in the Lord. Because with the Lord, there are two favors here, two favors that he bestows on undeserving rebels. The favors here are specifically steadfast love, or we could actually translate it unfailing covenant love. And redemption. What's redemption? Redemption is releasing or rescuing uh, helpless people who have been imprisoned in bondage. God had redeemed Israel by a mighty hand out of their helpless condition in Egypt. And here the psalmist says that God's redemption is plentiful, notice. His redemption is abundant. And then verse 8 And he will redeem, he will release, he will rescue Israel from what? From all his iniquities. Notice here how there's this future aspect in the verse. He will redeem. The redemption that's spoken of here, which is a redemption from all iniquities, will come down the road. It'll come in the future from the time when the psalmist was writing this. And so Israel's position, the posture that they were being called to here was to be a people who waited, who hoped, who were watchmen, looking and longing for their future redemption from all iniquities. Well, friends, as has been our custom over the past uh, few weeks in the Psalms, we go back now and we do kind of a brief review of the Psalm from the perspective of the new covenant. And in doing so, we gain tremendous comfort. So verses one and two, my question to you is, are you right now, as you watch this, as you listen to to the word this morning, are you right now in the depths? crying out to God from the depths, pleading with God to hear you, to be attentive to you, to give you mercy. Well, I'm here to tell you that you have a Savior, you have a captain named Jesus who himself expressed what Hebrews 5-7 calls loud cries and tears to God, just like the psalmist. Jesus himself cried to God out of the depths. And so he knows precisely where you're at in your depths. And... You have the assurance from Romans 8.35 and Romans 8.39 that your distress, whatever it is, your tribulation that you're walking through, the depth that you're in, and that word is used in Romans 8, the depth that you're in cannot and will not separate you from Christ's love. You need to know that it will not separate you from his active love relational, empathetic, benevolent, beautiful, comforting love and care. You're still in his hand. And then verses 3 and 4 of our psalm, 
If you, Lord, remember the hypothetical situation, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Well, if not for the sacrificial, substitutionary, atoning blood of Jesus our Savior and Lord, not one of us could stand before the tribunal of God. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We need a footing before God in order to stand. And what's our footing? Our footing is nothing but the blood of Jesus. Because of the cross, our lawless deeds are forgiven. Our sins are covered. We can stand covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And then with verses 7 and 8 of our psalm in mind, well, what do we find in the person and the work of Jesus? What we find in him is plentiful redemption. Ephesians 1.7, listen to what it says. It says, in him, in Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to, to the riches of his grace, plentiful redemption. The psalmist was talking about Jesus in verses 7 and 8. Jesus is the one who Israel waited for, like watchmen. He's the one that they hoped for. He's the one who came in the timing of God. And he came to do what? To save his people from their sins, it says in Matthew. He came to redeem us from all our iniquities. Titus 2, verse 14. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us, there's redemption language again, to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Colossians 1.14, In Jesus we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Well, as we mentioned a little earlier, we are awaiting people as God's people. That's who we are. We are awaiting people. We are called to be watchmen, to wait and to hope in keeping with the fifth and sixth verses of our psalm. Now, in this uh, gong show of a year, 2020, we are, perhaps more than ever, if you're a believer, we, we are waiting eagerly for the Lord. Listen to these verses from the New Testament. We wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 7. We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Titus 2, verse 13. We are waiting 
for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. 2 Peter 2.13 We wait eagerly, we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Romans 8.23 We are awaiting people. Our soul waits for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. But friends, our waiting is not an entirely passive occupation. We still work within the parameters of what God has called us to in this life. We still serve and we still sacrifice while we wait. And with 1 John 3, 3 in mind, we work to purify ourselves even as we are hoping and as we are waiting. We work to purify ourselves, to live holy unto the Lord. There is a new heavens and there is a new earth coming, friends. No more sin sickness in that time. No more depths of despair. No more dying and no more crying. And we will have sight of God face to face forever. Hallelujah. Wait for it in faith. Be patient in the Spirit. Submit to Jesus. Depend on Him and live content in your role as a watchman. Amen.